0: So God, um, we do transition from announcements to you. I pray that you would give us a word today, that your word would bring life and conviction and encouragement and peace and hope and renewed minds, Father, that, that your word would would convict us because it's sharper than a two-edged sword, Father, that it can pierce between bone and marrow. Father, I pray that you would, um, your word would change our lives today. That we would walk out of here encouraged, indifferent, recognizing a greater need for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's interesting when we start to talk about liberty and when we start start to talk about grace is I begin to see people become super cautious and concerned about giving people liberty and grace. Because when we give people such freedom then that means that they will do as they please. Now, freedom is not as it seems. So one of the challenges in the church is often when we mention grace or freedom, there is no accountability. Anyone ever feel that way? That when we get into preaching grace and liberty, then there's no accountability. Participating, anyone ever feel that way? That as, as, as we preach this, what we're actually trying to tell people is just go live as you want. Well, that's not it. The fact of the matter is that is not true. And far too often, people also, see Christians bound by a rule system. So the church world sees grace as giving people liberty. The um, outside world, the non-Christians, see that the church world is just bound by rules. So either we're giving too much freedom or we're slaves. Well, um, what is what Paul is beginning to get at is um, you have freedom. Like, Christians have freedom. But does freedom mean that we have such liberty? One author says this, it is easy to think about liberty as the right to sin, or the liberty to do as we want. But the liberty that Paul is talking about is freedom and liberty to do what God asks. So we have the freedom and liberty to do what God asks in our life. Now, Again, I can still feel people cringing in here because the one who is legalistic is afraid that freedom will give people a license to sin. Some people who are legalistic in here are being super cautious right now, just waiting for me to give the license to sin so that then you can come up and put me in my place here in a little bit or an email. Who are you? Where are you at? I'm not going to give that license. Um, I don't have anything to give you anyway. God is the only one that can give anything. Amen? So I can't give you the license. I can't take a license. I can't do anything. What I can try to do is try to preach his word in a truthful way and let it bring life. Essentially what legalists say is that they are afraid that people who live in freedom will take advantage of Christ. So what they think is those who um, have this license will sin, and then they will patronize God, ask for forgiveness, and then they sin again. fact of the matter is we've all done that. We've all sinned knowing that we shouldn't, told God we were sorry. A day, an hour, a week, a month, a year later, we did the same thing. See... um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a poor perspective when, when people think that they're patronizing God or that we're actually giving people the freedom to do that. Nevertheless, before Macy and my break, um, we finished up around um, verse 18 in Galatians 5. So today we're going to pick up there. So if you have your Bibles, Galatians 5, verse 18 It was so funny, there's a Bible study I do on Zoom, and again, I remember the pages, hearing the pages used to flip, and now you don't have that anymore, you just have the Bible. And then while I was doing this Bible study on Zoom, the person was doing this, and you're kind of offended. We're doing this Bible study on Zoom, and here you are texting during Bible study, and they're like, no, I'm taking notes. Used to, people took notes, they put them in their Bible, Who knows if they ever looked at them again. But they look nice and neat, right? But they take their notes, and you knew they were engaged. But now you're questioning, are people texting? Or are people taking notes during service? Who knows? Nevertheless, I don't hear the pages. So um, Galatians 5, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So to many many people... To many people, this can be understood as a contradiction, right? Because if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And the contradiction is this, is Paul is saying we can't earn our way to heaven throughout the whole book of Galatians, right? You can't earn your way to heaven. God's grace, it's all about God, it's all about his grace, so you can't earn your way to heaven. But now Paul is saying, but if, if you are led by the Spirit, you are under the law. So... Yeah, so you are not under the law. So Paul is saying we can't earn our way to heaven because we are under grace. But now he is saying we are not under the law if we are led by the Spirit. Thus leading to the potential contradiction that we ask is, are we only led by the Spirit if we don't sin? Does being led by the Spirit mean perfection? Isn't that a question that we all have? I messed up today. Does that mean that I'm not led by the Spirit? And we're going to answer that question towards the end of the sermon. But we have, you know, is, is Paul contradicting himself? Mercy or now rules? Because there's been a lot of people even within this community, no one in this room, but who deals with Mechanicsburg or Champaign County, there's been people who who have come in and spoken to people within this um, sphere that has essentially said, we can't please God unless we're perfect. Now, we have addressed that um, what God requires is perfection, right? But perfection isn't found within us. Perfection is found within Christ. Amen? So when we put our faith in Christ, and Christ makes us a new creation, we are seen perfect because of Christ, not because of us. Amen? So, what is verse 18 pointing to? Those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law, meaning that they cannot and will not be redeemed by the old redemptive history. So, those who are led by the flesh, we have learned, are under a curse. We learned that in Galatians 3. Those who are led by the flesh are under its power. Those who are under the flesh are under a guardian. And then those who are um, under the flesh, living under the flesh, or led by the flesh, are under elemental forces of the world. So we've learned all of that about the flesh. So the point that Paul is making is that life with Christ brings a whole new life to you and I. When we put our faith in Christ, we become a completely different person. He isn't giving us freedom to sin. What he's saying is we will have new desires. We will have a new ability to do right through the power of the Spirit. There will be fruits in our life So when we put our life in Christ, our desires and our nature and our hopes, our dreams should begin to change. It doesn't mean when we put our life in Christ that we became a new creation. Because actually, yeah, we put our life in Christ, we become a new creation. What it doesn't mean is that we just become perfect. Because if we became perfect, then that would actually mean that God is not as big as we think he is. Because I believe for the rest of eternity, even once we go to heaven, his holiness and his splendor and how big he is is going to be revealed. And how small we are is going to be revealed. So if, if we just became perfect in a moment, then would be like, wow, God's not as big as we really thought he was. For the rest of eternity, we're going to discover how big God is. Nevertheless, what Paul is getting at here is he's saying, look, you can discover Where your life is headed based upon your desires and based upon the fruits in your life. So what he's going to mention, what we're going to study today is the fruits of the flesh. So we're going to look at the fruits of the flesh. And then he says there's the fruits of the flesh and then there's the fruits of the spirit. So as I read through these and as I study these through the book of Galatians, then I have to look at my own life and say, which one dominates me the most? Do I desire the flesh more or do I desire the spirit more? So today we look at the fruits of the flesh. Verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what Paul has done here is he's categorized some sin that we will see if we are submitting to the flesh. This by no means is a complete list. Um, But what Paul does throughout Scripture is he actually gives us different lists throughout Scripture to help us see and understand what sin is, but then also what we're following. So we also see a list in Romans 1, 29 through 31. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. And they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. And then also in 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. So what Paul has been revealing throughout the New Testament is, look, Here's a way to help you, help you and I understand, are we following the flesh or are we following the spirit? My point here is that the acts of the flesh are not limited to the list that Paul provided in just Galatians 5. Um, yeah, because actually what Paul ends up saying at the end of Galatians uh, 5, verse 21, as he says, and the like. So he's saying, look, there's other areas of sin, so don't just look at this list and say, I don't do this, 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 I'm a good person. He's saying, and the like, so there's more. So we have to remember that sin, the works of the flesh, come from rebellion within our heart. That's the root of it. Us thinking that we can lead our own life, that we are in control, that we know what's best. Rebellion, right? So that's touched upon in uh, Mark 7, uh, 20 through 23. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within uh, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. So it's within the person that evil comes, right? And then he proceeds to say, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come inside, come from inside and defile a person. So all of the sin Paul is getting at, All of the sin comes from within our nature first. So I can't say Macy made me. I can't say this person or the way that our leaders are leading caused within me. No, there's something within my nature that then was rebelling from God and not submitting to God, which then caused me to manifest in a way that was unbiblical. There was someone that we just encountered recently, and um, their dog got out. And their dog got out, and um, we've been recognizing over the past five months that their gate's been open. But it's like, well, I mean, the gate's open so much, the dog never seems to go out even when the gate's open. They must have their gate open for a reason. So we never did anything, because nowadays, it's like people might get offended with that. Where 10 years ago, you just go shut the gate, Go knock on the person's door, you tell them, and then you sit there for 20 minutes catching up. Well, nowadays, it's like you can sit there knocking for 20 minutes, and they're just sitting in their living room looking at you like, I'm not getting up. Go away, right? So the gate was open, and um, I was going on a jog, and then the, a wife was like, hey, um, our dog got out. And I said, well, when I'm running, it's not going to be very far, but when I run, if I see the dog, I'll try to catch it. Well, they ended up catching the dog, and we ended up seeing them, and we asked them about the gate. We said, if we see the gate open, should we, should we shut the gate? And they said, yes, we don't know why it's been open. And then someone else in the family came up, and they said, I know what the problem is. That stupid guy that's been mowing our grass. And he just started, it wasn't his sin that just came out of him, right? And then he apologized, because I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, I can't be calling someone stupid in front of a pastor, and I'm like, you haven't been walking with Macy and I and all the people I've been calling stupid, so, so it's okay, right? But out of his heart, out of his heart, from within him, it wasn't the open gate that caused him to express himself that way, right? It was the sinful nature that was within him, amen? So sin comes from within us and we can't keep pointing the finger at this politician or that politician or this stupid person or that stupid person or if this person would. No, one day when we face God, he's going to speak to us about our sinful nature and how we submit our sinful nature to his spirit and to his word. Amen? So quit pointing the finger. What Paul is trying to help us understand is we have a sinful nature and it has to come in alignment with Christ. And if these areas are within our life, we might not be following him the way that we think. Now, again, he's taught, don't don't lose sight of the whole context of Galatians. The whole context of Galatians is still this, is look, you can't earn your way to me. You can't earn your way to Christ. So Paul is not contradicting himself now trying to say, you can't earn your way to me, and since you can't earn your way to me, now earn your way to Christ. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, look, a fruit in your life is gonna be that throughout the process of your life, sanctification is going to take place. You're not going to be participating in these things. You're gonna be participating in different things. So we should be mindful to consider what Paul is listed here in Galatians, but we must also note that there are more ways to sin than just this. Thus, we all must receive this with a humble heart. Let's just receive today's message, me included as I work through this throughout the week, with a humble heart. At the end of my message, I'm preaching to myself and saying, I need to submit to you more. I need more of your grace and mercy because I recognize that I fall short And you want to know something really cool, we were sharing a piece of the gospel at Bible Club on Friday, and we essentially just shared with kids, look, we sin and we fall short, and sin isn't measured on a scale of good versus bad. Sin is measured on a pass-fail. Now, some sins have different consequences than others, right? But sin is pass-fail, and all the kids recognized, and I asked them by a raise of hands, I said, how many of you guys recognize that you need Jesus today, that you need more of him? Every kid in the classroom raised their hand and said, we need more of Jesus. Amen? So we have kids who are recognizing that there's deficit in their life. And the more that we operate from a humble spirit and a humble heart, rather than acting like we have it all together, we recognize that each day, each hour, each moment, we need him. Amen? So, um, back to Galatians 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul just gave us a cheat sheet to understand whether we are following the flesh or the spirit. Um, They are essentially broken down into four categories. So sexual categories. So sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Sacred sins, idolatry, and witchcraft. So these sacred sins are dealing with God or sins against God, right? Social sins, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, um, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Um, Everything else against God. So the word debauchery in the original language is um, os el gaia. Um, asagaya, which means lic- uh, licitousness. So essentially that means that people make the mistake that they think that living under grace means to be free to do whatever they want. So debauchery is telling us that people think and they make the mistake in the original language what was being said is people think that they can live however they want and God forgives them. Now, Jesus died for all sin, amen? But this language is not giving us a license to sin. So grace is not giving us a license, amen? Okay. Essentially, that means that when people make a mistake, they think that um, living under grace, they get to do whatever they want. We have to understand that moving through Galatians. Galatians. So the first thing that Paul wants those in Galatia to recognize is how sexual sin is prominent within the nature of mankind. Sin is, but sexual sin. And there's um, things it'll say that'll say that will make some of us uncomfortable, especially with the some of us that are dealing with some of the things that I mentioned. But they have to be brought up, right? But essentially, Paul's addressing sexual sin within our life. So when it comes to this sin area, sexual sin grieves the heart of God. It hurts the heart of God. So that means a look, a look at someone. Guys, when you're looking at women, women, when you're looking at all the Fabios or Fabios, right? We see those books. Like, Don't act like guys are the only ones. So a look, a thought, a touch, a feel, an emotional relationship. Wanting to be desired by someone other than your spouse. There was um, an acquaintance of mine that I talked to outside of this community several years ago. And he said, Joey, when it comes to the idea of women, I don't want to be with anyone other than my wife. Some days I just want to know that I still have it. That's a sin. Any guys in here just want to know if they still have it? (laughs) Women, close your eyes. (laughs) Look, some of us still just want to know that we have it, right? You still want to feel like you look good. You feel good in your skin. That's a sin. It's not a sin to take care of yourself. But the idea of do I still have it? When you're married, that is a sin. Porn. Scary word, isn't it? That just struck some people. Porn is a sin. Extra-biblical relationships. Adultery. How about this one? Even sexual jokes. Not just telling a sexual joke, but how about this? Listening to a sexual joke and laughing. That's sin. So what Paul is saying is, look, there's some sexual areas in your life that are sin. And when it comes to these kind of areas, it grieves the heart of God. The first thing that, yeah, it grieves the heart of God. So how many of you guys are uncomfortable with some of the sexual sins that we talked about? Anyone uncomfortable yet? All right, we're going to keep on talking about some more. We want you to feel it today. Sexual sin grieves the heart of God. But remember, I'm not giving you my opinion today. We're looking and standing and putting our faith in God's word and God's word alone. Amen? So when Paul is discussing sexual sin here, in the um, original language, it is the word pornaia. In pornaia, is a, uh, illicit sexual intercourse. Here's the definition adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals, etc., sexual intercourse with close relatives, sexual intercourse with a divorced man or woman, the worship of idols, of the defilement of idolatry, as occurred by eating the sacrifices offered to idols not my definition, the original language, the biblical definition. Now, one might say, um, why are you picking on the community? I'm not. I'm not picking on people who have sexual sin in their life. We all fall short of the glory of God. But what we are saying is, if these things that we're following, if we're following these things, we might not be led by the Spirit as much as our heart deceives us. Because what ends up happening is when we read the Bible, we're either the hero or we're the person that's having the pity party and wants everyone else to minister to us. There rarely seems to be a steady in between, like at least in my life. Um, So I need to be led by the Spirit more. But the original language, pornaya, is the definition. So sexual sins affects you, but they also affect others. It dishonors those made in the image of Christ. It is the epitome of selfishness. It disrupts God's plan for marriage. It can dominate one's being. It completely goes against the fruits of the Spirit. Um, In the occult world, this is down a little bit of a rabbit trail, um, but in the occult world, there's, sexual practices that they participate in that, um, that deal with people's thoughts during um, intercourse and chants and thoughts, right? You know, like, wow, this is a really big uh, rabbit trail. But what someone who used to be in the occult shared with me is they said, Joey, the same thing with, man, we're using big terms today that make people uncomfortable, Make me uncomfortable. Am I getting red in the face yet? This is important for us to be able to have a conversation with, right? Real talk. And what they said is, what we have to realize is um, masturbation and thinking about someone is also an occult practice. So then he said, what ends up happening is whether you're um, participating in that or not intentionally what his perspective was is that's casting something onto that person's life. Does that make sense? So you're like, no, it doesn't. Um, essentially, what they were saying is that sexual sin and that thought process paired up with masturbation cast as evil towards that person. So, so it's like, man, like sin does affect people. It doesn't just affect you. Maybe, I, I'm not here to say that happens when we do that, right? I'm not saying that, that I'm actively, uh, or we've actively, or we're actively, whatever. I'm not saying that that's what we're doing, but I am saying maybe it makes a little bit of sense that we're casting that lust, we're casting that spirit towards that, uh, that person. I'm not ready to fully preach it yet, but it's an idea, it's free, and uh, if you want to talk more about it, then you and I can both do more research on it. Nevertheless, sexual sin does not just affect you and I. What Paul is simply saying is that the Spirit of God never leads anyone to a place of sexual sin. God never leads us to that place. He never leads us to the place of wanting to be desired by anyone other than our spouse. He never leads us to sexually think about anyone other than our spouse. He never leads us to a place to wanting to emotionally connect with someone in deep areas other than our spouse. Never with anyone. So what Paul is saying is the Spirit never leads you there. So if you go there, you're being led by the flesh. Amen? So then we understand, when I wanted to be desired today, I was not following the Spirit of God and I missed something. The Spirit never leads us there. So therefore, if the Spirit never leads us there, we are sinning. We are not following the Spirit, we are following our flesh. And remember, sexual sin is a heart issue that doesn't want to submit to God. This nation does not, uh, sorry, this nation does not see revival until we, not the person across the room, not the person next to you, until we as individuals repent of our sin. Amen? We keep on waiting on the White House to repent. We keep on waiting on the governor to repent. We keep on waiting on a person next to us or over there. No, stop. All of us in this room today should be finding an area of sexual sin where we have fallen short and agree with God that we have fallen short and that we need to turn to him. Amen. That's hard to admit in this room. Well, the church needs to get over the fear of confessing sin and repenting or we're never going to grow as a nation. All of us have fallen short when it comes to sexual sin. No condemnation. None. Absolutely no condemnation for me today because I'm not the one who can even condemn you. Zero condemnation. What I want us to understand is there's freedom in Christ to be set free from the weight of that sin. Amen. <laughs> That's it. So here's what we do. We say, God, I've fallen short in the area of sexual sin. I've looked, I've been emotionally connected with that person. I've winked at this person. And and what we learn through the book of John is adultery, adultery isn't just always looking at that person, but adultery is making that person desire you as well. So I just get done with a two-mile walk run and I'm sweating. And the sweat's coming down my body in a tank top, and I go to Kroger shopping through the produce, right? All these middle-aged women, right? And I'm just feeling good. I got the sweat coming down, and my bald head is just shining, right? They're like, cool with me up front, and then I turn around to pick up the potatoes, and they're like, no butt and bald spot, I'll pass. I shouldn't ever want anyone to ever think about me other than Macy. Amen? Amen. So the clothes that I wear matter. The, the things that I do matter. And everything that I do should be submitting to Christ. Amen. Then Paul proceeds. Or, yeah, yeah. I just want to say this is please seek the heart of God today and own up to his ways. You haven't followed his spirit. There's no grace or sorry. There's no condemnation. All that there is is grace. All that there is is grace. Paul then proceeds to mention the sacred areas of sin. This gets gets complicated. Sacred sins within the context of today help us understand that we are all worshiping something. So what we must ask is, not if we are worshiping something, but what does our life say that we are worshiping? I recognize many times in my life, it's easy for me to declaratively say that I'm a Christian, but my life has been living completely different. So then, when I have the self-reflection moments, I don't say what do I just declaratively say with my mouth, but what does my life say that I'm following? So we must ask ourselves, what do we just not say with our lips, but what does our life say we are worshiping? So Paul brings up this, these ideas of idolatry and witchcraft. Uh, we participate in idolatry when we worship anything that is not Christ. An example of this could be found in Romans 1, 21 through 25, up on the screen. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of immortal God, of the immortal God, for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave, them over in, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies and one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. They neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So we are clear, um, idolatry is not limited to those who just practice other religions. See, where we get deceived as we say, well, this religion is idolatry, that religion is idolatry, this religion is idolatry, but because I'm a Christian, I don't participate in idolatry. Well, no, we still do. There's still areas in our life that we practice idolatry. One author says, idolatry is when we look to something else other than God to give us something only he can give. I wish that I would could come up with that, but I couldn't, so I had to say one author. Idolatry is when we look to something else other than God to give us something only he can give. That's idolatry. So this means intimacy, peace, joy, salvation, provision, hope. And idolatry manifests itself. It reveals itself through materialism, through savings accounts, through 401ks, through career and climbing the ladder, through science as we become small gods, through recreation, through pursuing recreation through loving the Buckeyes, through insanely liking the school up north, for devoting yourself to some kind of sport. Idolatry is when we desire our reputation or our appearance. Idolatry is when we put more hope in politics than we do our king. Idolatry is when we talk more about politics than we do our savior. We can even, or Idolatry can even manifest through the way that we love our families. And I know you're like, hey, that doesn't make sense. No, what God tells us in Scripture, I believe it's Luke 18, you must be willing to hate your father, hate your mother, hate your brother, hate your sister, even hate yourself or you're not fit for the kingdom. So what God is not saying is hate your family. What God is saying is God up here, family down here. Amen? So don't hear what I'm not saying today and saying that um, you shouldn't love, protect, and lead and serve your family because scripture also tells us that we're not to ever give up on our family no matter how crazy it gets which is also hard too because some of our family members if they weren't family we certainly wouldn't go camping with them, right? I love my family. I mean my immediate, my siblings are perfect. So um, when they answer the phone, when they call me back, when they're not stirring up problems, no, I'm very thankful for the siblings and family that God has given me. But the fact of the matter is we can worship our family. Does anyone in here ever feel like they've worshiped their family? Because I'll tell you what, I have worshiped Macy. I have put Macy before God in many ways before. And um, I convinced myself And there's still moments that I have to guard. (laughs) So I'm not saying so that I don't um, worship Macy that now I'm just a jerk to her. No, what it means is um, I look to God for greater peace than Macy can bring. That all the hopes and the intimacy that I have with her, I have that same hope with God. That the conversations I have with her, I can still have with Him. That when I need my proverbial head-rubbed at night so that I can sleep better. That I just don't utilize the gift that God has given me, but together we pursue him for peace. That I don't just, um, one of the things throughout the sabbatical, throughout the break, that frustrated me is um, I just felt like I was just serving my own kingdom. And Macy was like, why are you so grumpy? I just hate repairing that. Like, I don't mind doing the work of repairing our house and fixing these things, but I want to be out with people. And I think there can be a tendency where what we end up doing is like, we just serve our own kingdoms. You've heard me talk about this, right? And sometimes serving our own kingdom can become idolatry within our own family, within our own kingdoms. And maybe some of us are offended by that today. Before you email me or talk to me about it, before you try to justify, why don't we both pray about it? Amen? Let's just both pray, God, have I, have I put my family before you? Have I made my family an idol? I mean, one way that it could be um, unapologetically is just the way that AAU sports and sports, it's not a new thing, right? Um, I remember um, playing Wee football and we'd come in here for worship and then we'd walk out on Pastor Linden. I gotta get to football. Now, does that mean... Um, so what did we essentially do? Does, does it mean you have to come to church to be a Christian? No, not what I'm saying. But what we did value is we valued going to Wee football rather than being with the body of Christ. And that can be a form of idolatry. Nevertheless, I have um, shared what I need to share on that. But it is unique to think about this, that our money our money says in God we trust. It's, Probably not going to say that much longer the way that culture's headed. Um, yet, in reality, for most people, it's in money we trust. When economies crash, people crash because their God is thrown, um, is thrown off of its throne. Money says in God we trust. But it, it appears as if we're headed towards a money crisis. Where are we going to be when the money crisis hits? Is it in God we trust or in money we trust? Because if it's in God we trust, nothing changes. Nothing should change about our life. Why? Because we trust God. We trust God that he's going to provide every need that we have each day. Amen? But many of us idolize our money and our bank accounts and our savings And that's where we put our faith. And God is a good God when it grows. And then when it shrinks or when it's shrinking, then all that we have the bandwidth to pray about is that he would grow it again. It's like, oh my goodness, I idolize money. Why is it I looked at all my savings this week more than I have the Bible? I idolize money. Again, no condemnation. What Paul is revealing is, look, there's some areas in our life that we don't look to Christ, we look to the flesh. Paul is saying that those who are living by the Spirit don't put things before God. Paul continues in sacred areas by talking about witchcraft. Uh, it's highly prominent, prominent today. It's been prominent for years. I mean, we see it all throughout the Bible. <laughs> But this is when someone pursues dark forces to try to change the outcome of life. It also happens when we read horoscopes, pursue a medium, uh, fortune teller, card and hand readers, looks to the stars, um, trusts in their angel number, fortune cookies, Ouija boards. When we look to any of those things for direction in our life, it's a form of witchcraft. Um, we shouldn't feel beat up today. Do you guys feel beat up today? I hope you don't. No condemnation. Um, What Paul is saying is those who are following these idols in their life are not following the Spirit because the Spirit will never and has never let us down this path. Amen? So when we're following idols in our life, when we're putting things before God, he never led us there. Amen? So, next what Paul brings up is how we socially follow the flesh. 20, verse uh, 20b. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. The source of all conviction. How does your heart respond during times of conviction? um, Yeah, sorry, not conviction. The source of all conflict. The source of all conflict is this idea of hatred, right? So hatred... Hatred is the source of all conflict. How does your heart respond during times of conflict? When something doesn't go your way, how does your heart respond? So Paul brings up hatred, and he says, look, this is the source of all conflict. Discord, he brings up. Simply put, discord, this is when someone who has a compative spirit or argumentative spirit Anyone in here know someone with a combative spirit or argumentative spirit? I do. See, this person, uh, and you may be the person too, um, you always have to have the last word. You're unwilling to take a step away until you're heard. So you just keep on digging and grinding until the person finally agrees with you. Uh, you're, yeah, you're unwilling to step away. You make sure that your opinion is known. That's discord. And Paul's saying, look, God, the Spirit never leads you to be a person of discord. Then he continues with jealousy. Um, desire to have something that is not yours. This manifests through a lack of gratitude, bitterness, and comparison. Many people who are jealous cannot celebrate what God is or has done in someone else's life. Do you celebrate other people's victories? Or are you jealous of them? Whether they're biblical or not, do you celebrate other people's victories? I don't think I celebrate as many people's victories as I should. And at the core of it, it's because the world revolves around me, right? It's not my victory, so I'm not as excited about your victory because it's not my victory. That's not led by the Spirit, amen? So in all of us, are we willing to not be jealous and celebrate other people's victories? Other people's, um, yeah, good things in their life. Fits of rage. Are you quick-tempered? you lack self-control. God does not, the Spirit of God does not lead us to be quick-tempered. Actually, what does Scripture say? Be slow to be angry, quick to listen, slow to be angry, slow to speak, right? So the Spirit's telling us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Selfish ambition People who um, struggle with this. You serve people to make yourself look good. It appears that many politicians do this. You serve people to grow a following because it's all about you. You get into something for money, not godly reasons. Paul even addressed preachers who preached out of rivalry, not sincerity. And I wonder how how much of this we see on social media nowadays. Um, I was telling Luke last week, um, there used to be YouTube worship videos where you would see just the authenticity of people worshiping. And nowadays it's just like anyone can make a high quality video and it's just like you're only making this video for a following. So it's like these videos seem to be powerless nowadays. Christian music generally seems to be powerless because, you know, there's, there's over like 50,000 new songs released a day. And maybe it's me being jealous that people get their song on the radio and I'm not a good singer. Maybe I'm jealous, like I ask myself these questions. Maybe it's because I'm jealous. Maybe it's discernment, but it just feels like some of the Christian music today is powerless Because the idea is, how many followers can I get? How many likes can I get? How much money can I make? And I just feel like um, that's selfish ambition at work. Dissension. The spirit of God brings unity. It doesn't divide the body of Christ. Paul warns us not to devour one another in Romans 16, 17. I'm not going to turn there. But are we devouring one another through dissension, through complaining, through griping, through pointing fingers, through talking bad about people, through creating factions? And Paul warns us about factions. This is um, dividing over your opinion. The church, you know, when Paul addresses churches within the context of Scripture, what he says is the Corinthian church. Church of Galatia. He doesn't say to the Mennonite Church CMC network in Mechanicsburg or to the Methodist Church of West Ohio branch Methodist in Mechanicsburg. What he says is to the church. Guess what the church has done? How many sects of Christianity do we have now? we created factions and division. Now, at the end of the day, you're a Christian or you're not. You believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that he died on the cross and he rose three days later, that he is the only door to heaven. You believe that a sin is a sin, or you don't. But dividing over certain things of the rapture, pre-trip, post-trip, mid-trip, dividing over things of Carpet colors or whatever else. There, there should be no division there. But factions have been created within the church. One author says this, there is, a diff- um, there is all the difference in the world between believing that we are right and believing that everyone is wrong. Unshakable conviction is a Christian virtue. Unyielding intolerance is a sin. So if we find ourselves in conversations where everyone else is always the problem and we're the only ones that ever have the right answer, then I believe that we're creating factions and dissension within the church, within our lives. How many people are always generally the right person in the room? We can laugh at it. How many of you guys feel like Thank you. Thank you for being honest. The rest of you are just unwilling to admit it right now. Look, you only speak because you feel like you have the right opinion, right? Nevertheless, we have to create or stop creating factions. We create factions by gossiping, by talking about people. Um, It's highly evil, and the Spirit of God never leads you to do that. The conversation that sounds biblical, God never le- uh, led you to talk about. God never leads you to talk about people behind their back. Amen? God wants you to pray for people. But here's, here's how the spirit of the flesh starts to creep in. Hey, Landon, I want to tell you about something in Mark Miller's life so that we can pray about it. But what ends up happening is I tell you about Mark Miller for 18 minutes And then you and I spend 30 seconds praying about it. God help Mark Miller. So what I end up doing is I gossip about Mark Miller. I share my opinion about Mark Miller with Landon for 18 minutes. Out of care for him and prayer. But now, how's Landon ever going to unhear what I just said about Mark? He's not. The things that we say can't be unheard. And what scripture is telling us is, Following the Spirit does not create dissension and factions that way. Even within our families. Paul continues with envy. This is the idea of becoming frustrated that someone else has something that we don't. Whether we want to admit it or not, there's been some kind of envy in our life this week. Maybe... um, we're envious that someone retired. Maybe we're envious that a coworker makes more money than us. Maybe we're envious that someone has a vehicle that we've always wanted. Maybe we're envious of someone else's house or they have a job that we've always dreamed of. Maybe we're envious of the perceived life that one family is putting on on Facebook. We become envious. See, being envious, essentially it's, this is considered to, um, to gr- yeah, the grief at someone else's good. So we grieve someone else's good. That's envious. I wish I had this, or I wish I had that, or I'm so frustrated that this person received this or that. The Spirit never leaves, leads us to be envious of anyone or anything. So as I even preach to myself today, here's what I'm recognizing. God, I need you. I fall short. And I haven't been following you in every area by the Spirit. I need to repent. I need to look to you more. God, I need you every hour. And then he says, drunken orgies. Now, it's not as clear as it seems, right? You're like, well, drunken orgies. Shouldn't that be in, shouldn't that be just in the sexual area? No. What, what's being um, pointed to here within the idea of drunken orgies is drunkenness that has no bounds. Like you, you just get drunk, and then it has no bounds. So, orgies, um, drugs, blacking out, wild parties, just doing whatever you want. There's no bounds to it. Um, it's, yeah, so being drunk is a sin, uh, Ephesians 5.8. It's wasteful according to scripture, but the idea of orgies is to be drunk and partying without limits. There is no limit that we are not willing to go. Um, yeah, these people cannot control their appetite. So um, as I look across the room, I'm not sure that any of us are participating in drunken orgies. Um, If you are, God has so much more for you. If you desire it, God has so much more for you. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. God wants to set you free from that. What Paul has done, as he talked about these fruits of the flesh today, He's helped us understand that the works of flesh lead us to a place of depravity. We should really be understanding how ugly our flesh and our nature can be. But Paul finishes his sentence by saying this: that those who practice such things will inherit the kingdom of God." So those who practice, what does practice mean? Does practice mean I did it once this week? Does practice mean I did it twice this week? Does practice mean I did it five times this week? What does to practice mean? How do I know so that I don't feel condemned each week when I fall short? Now, I think um, when I fall short, I should feel convicted because the Spirit of God will convict us so that we get rid of our sin. But this condemnation that we speak over our own life and that we walk in is not of God either. So, to those who practice, what does that mean? He is saying that if you are living under the control of the flesh, you will not enter the kingdom of God. If you continue in your sin, you will not go to heaven. That's scary. Because there's sins in my life. and there, there's Whether I looked good in my tank top, feeling like I'm sweating with my bald head or not out, there was a lot of pride in that, wasn't there? whether I thought that all these middle-aged women were looking at me or not, right? There was pride in it, in that illustration. So if I continue in that, that's scary. So what if today you have fibbed a little bit? Today, literally today, a little bit. Does that mean that you're going to hell? I can tell you this. The Spirit of God did not lead you to a place of lying. The Spirit of God never led Abraham to the place of lying. Abraham lied. God made it work together for his good. God never told him to lie. So what if you fibbed a little bit today? The Scripture says, but those who practice in the original language. um, This word is paraso in the original language. So prasso um, is to practice. Example: perform repeatedly or habitually. Thus, this is different than um, those who practice in a different original language. So, a different word. This is a different word than to practice. That we, so praso is used in one form to practice. We can find the root of that in another form. These are not the same forms, right? So, the form, um, the other form refers to a single act. So, the form that is being spoken about here in Galatians, right here within the sentence, is to habitually practice, to do over and over and over again, not just to do once. By implication, to execute, to accomplish. Uh, specially to collect dues, fare personally, commit deeds to do, um, exact, keep, require, use, arts. So to perform repeatedly or habitually. So what Paul is saying is those who are following the flesh do these things all of the time. It possesses you. You think about it all of the time. Now look, As believers, I don't think that we should have a spirit that tries to justify our actions. I also don't think we should walk in condemnation. But here's what what can be scary for us is we can try to justify right now and say, I don't do this all of the time. But maybe there's something that I don't practice every day, but maybe there's something that I practice every three months. And God's desire is that you don't practice that every three months. Amen? So, to a certain degree, it's not something that I deal with daily, but habitually, every three months, I do deal with something. So, God still wants to get rid of that. Nevertheless, um, what sins dominate your life? Is your life dominated by certain sins? What are you following? What do you practice each day? Are you not following him in certain areas? Because today, as I read these verses, I realize I cannot hide from God. Maybe I can hide from you guys. Maybe you guys can hide from me. Maybe you guys can hide from your spouse or your best friend or your parents. But what I realize is we cannot hide from God. So today you're like, okay, Joey, you have brought up a whole lot of areas of sin in my life. Thanks for telling me how bad I am. Not what I'm trying to say. I think if that's what you heard then we missed it. Paul is revealing these areas so that we can be set free. Paul is saying, look at these things. If these things are in your life God has so much more for you. He wants to set us free because look, When I sin, it doesn't feel good, does it? Then I fall into this path of trying to earn my way back to God, trying to do good for God, feeling like I can't talk to him for three days. And when God is saying, look, I want to set you free from that so you don't have to go through any of that. You are free to not sin anymore. So today, um, Paul wants us to be set free. And what we have to realize is this, is um, this world is never changing. If we are always the ones that are doing okay and justifying ourselves, and we are never the ones that need to change. We start the change with ourselves. Amen? God, I need you, not just God stew needs you. What a horrible attitude. What does scripture say? Get the, speck out, uh, get the log out of your eye instead of the speck out of your friends. What's really deceived this nation is we keep on trying to get the speck out of everyone else's eye and we, we are not dealing with the log. So I'm not telling you guys today to get, um, I'm not looking at you guys to get the speck out. I'm looking at myself to say, I need to get the log out. I have logs that I need to deal with. So I need to change. You need to change. America needs to change. But it starts with you and I repenting. God, I am practicing many, thi- many of these things today, and I'm not following you. I'm saying that. I'm not rhetorically saying that. There's many things that I need to work on. God, I'm not following you. God, I need strength to follow you greater. God, I need to repent. God, I am sorry. God, I look to you. God, I need your help. I know that we need his help. I need his help to yield to him. I need his help to not practice the ways of the flesh. I need his help to obey him. I need his help. God, I fall short. God, I need you. God, I need your power to come over me and to lead me, to renew me, so that I will practice the fruits of the Spirit at a greater level. So I believe that revival can start in this nation, in Mechanicsburg. But us as individuals don't need to try to justify ourselves. We look to the cross as our justification. And because the cross is our justification, we have nothing to hide, and we can live repentant and humbly before others. Amen? So, we're gonna practice that today. No background music, no nothing. Just a church of people who say, God, I've been following you, or sorry, I've been following my flesh, and I've also been trying to follow you, but I want to deal with these areas of flesh today. I want to deal with these areas of flesh. I I can't deal with them. I need you to deal with these areas of flesh today because your grace is setting me free. Amen? So what I'm going to ask is no background music, no light change, that we have a church based upon God's word, his word that's willing to come stand up here, come sit here, and have a conversation with God about him increasing himself in your life because you don't want to follow the flesh the way that you have before. That today, after you pray, that in this moment you are going to focus on his spirit and try to be led by his spirit, by his power, by the power of the cross and the resurrection, that he's made us a new creation, that we will not just have a form of godliness, but we will submit to his power in all areas. Amen. So what I'm asking is that you guys, when I begin to pray, you're gonna respond and you're gonna ask God to lead you away from your flesh. So Father, is that clear enough for you guys or I need to make it clearer? What I'm proposing is that a response to come up here and meet God privately as a confession, but as a need to say, I need to follow your spirit even more. Give me power to follow your spirit even more. So Father, Um, I recognize as I even preach it to myself today, Father, that I'm following my flesh. And sometimes I feel powerless to overcome the flesh. And certainly I am. But you are powerful, and the blood of Jesus is powerful. And Father, you understood that I couldn't defeat the flesh without the blood of Christ. And Father, that's where your grace and your mercy comes in. So in Jesus' name today, Father, I ask that you would help us as a church collectively, all of us in this room. There's even no condemnation for not responding when you feel like you should. But Father, um, I pray that your spirit, your word would bring life to us. That we would experience a love encounter with who you are that you would set us free. That when we walk out of here, Father, that the power of the cross and the resurrection, the power of Jesus Christ would be manifesting on us to be slow to speak, to be quick to listen. The way that we think about people, Father, the way that um, our desires can lead us astray, Father, that they would come in alignment with you. not a crafty sermon, Father, just you, your presence. Will you do something in our life? I just ask that you would would do something in our life, Father. And then as you do something in our life, Father, we would just see, like, we no longer desire this. We no longer desire that. That relationships are being put back together. Father, I pray that we would recognize that there's no low place that someone following you is unwilling to go for you. So may we humble ourselves May we give us home-field advantage. Father, I even pray for those who are watching or listening online hours, days, or weeks later that as your word brings life to them, that they would surrender to you. Just do your work, Father. Do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.